I will never forgive you. Probably words that none of us ever want to, to hear. Often words spoken out of raw anger or deep hurt because of sin, because of a devastating betrayal. When sin entered a, a marriage, a family, a friendship, and forever changed things. It often results in the one who said those words being destroyed by their own anger and bitterness, and the one who received those words consumed with their guilt and shame. Unforgiveness is really an unbearable weight, an unbearable burden, a crushing weight, an untreatable pain. Um, and none more so when people sensitive to their sin believe that they have sinned against God and their sin is so serious, so wrong, so evil that they can't imagine ever being forgiven for it. And they conclude that perhaps they have committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. Uh, most, if not all, pastors have had a tormented soul coming to them thinking that they may have commit, committed this unforgivable sin. Uh, many Christians, perhaps even some here today with us, are tormented by this question. They, they torture themselves wondering if their sin perhaps a deliberate sin, perhaps a habitual sin, perhaps a blasphemous sin, have placed them beyond the forgiveness of Christ. And so this morning we will see from our passage in Matthew what is the unforgivable sin. And uh, let me just say right from the start that if you are a Christian, and are concerned about whether you have committed this sin, then it is almost certain that you have not. So I'll just put that out there right in the beginning. Um, the ones who commit the sins are not Christians. They never have been, nor will they ever be. They are never concerned about whether they have committed this sin or not. And so please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. And as you do that, let me just remind you yet again of, of our context. That Matthew's gospel seeks to present Christ as the expected one, the, the long-awaited prophesied king of Israel. Uh, and in chapters 1 to 10, we see this presentation of the king where, where Jesus says who he is and what he came to do. That he came preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and Matthew makes it very clear that there is a close link between the king and the kingdom of heaven which he presents or, or offers uh, and he demonstrated that he is the king by performing miracles which displays the authority and power over nature, over uh, disease, over death, over demons. Uh, and whenever he went, wherever he went, uh, he prophesied uh, and, and 
the kingdom conditions which was prophesied manifested in his presence and through his ministry. And so he came to offer the kingdom of heaven to Israel by offering himself to them. Repent and believe, receive me, Jesus, as the Christ, as the King, and the kingdom will come. However, Jesus did not fulfill the expectations of the Jewish people and especially the religious leaders of who and what a king would be like. And so in Matthew 11 to 12, Matthew, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records for us the rising opposition against Jesus as the king. The people displayed their opposition by uh, disobedience, not repenting, uh, even in the light of compelling evidence that he is the king and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, even while they were disobeying him, he kept holding out his hand, inviting them to come to him and he will give them rest. The religious leaders displayed their opposition by accusing him, accusing him of being a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker, breaking the rabbinical laws governing the Sabbath, which was the pinnacle of their legalistic system of worship. And last week we saw. Uh, Really, the qualities of the king, uh, that in spite of opposition, how he responded, how he acted, that he, was, he responded with mercy in meekness and great assurance, that he was spirit-filled, that he was faithful, humble, and gentle. And today we come to this particular incident, a a particular occasion, a particular ministry event in the life of Jesus, not unlike many of the others that he has performed before, but this time the religious leaders express their unbelief by defaming Jesus and denouncing him and his ministry as being of Satan. And if there ever were people who called good evil... These Pharisees were those people. And this is a monumental moment for the people of Israel and in the ministry of Jesus. For rejecting Jesus as king really rejects the kingdom of God. From this moment onwards, we will see in the Gospels that it becomes clear that the coming of the king and the establishment of the kingdom will take two comings of Christ. The first coming would be to redeem his people from their sin by offering himself as a sacrifice, an atonement for their sin. And his second coming will be the execution of his judgment and the consummation of his kingdom fulfilling all the outstanding prophecies that was not fulfilled in his first coming during his second coming. And so let us read Matthew 12, verse 22 to 32. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against 
itself is laid waste, and any city of, or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first bind the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you, Lord, for your word, the ministry of your word. Thank you for your spirit that applies it to our hearts. Lord, teach us this morning, Lord, about this unforgivable sin. Lord, for your people who are disturbed and fearful that they may have committed this sin. Lord, bring comfort to their hearts. Give them understanding. And Lord, for those who have not turned to you, who have not bowed to you, have not received you in repentance and faith, Lord, change their unbelief. Bring them to repentance. Grant them repentance and faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so really, this passage, I want to take us through really four elements uh, which makes up this unforgivable sin. And the first one is a clear demonstration of Christ as king. The first element is a clear, undeniable demonstration by Jesus that he is the king, that he has the power and the authority to bring about all the features and characteristics of the kingdom of God, a kingdom which will be characterized not by evil, but by good, not by suffering, but by blessing. And so we read here, first of all, that they brought a demon-possessed man to Jesus. Now, we in the West, we don't really get that. We don't, we don't, we don't have a, a great concept of what someone is like who is demon-possessed. Uh, demon possession really means that a demon, an evil spirit, has entered into someone and has taken control of his faculties, influencing that person to do things and say things that are truly evil. We see demon possession in the Bible really often resulted in physical and mental derangements. Uh, here we see this man was, was blind and mute. Other times... Uh, there appears to be almost symptoms similar to epilepsy where in Mark 9, the father who brought his son to Jesus to be healed, we, we saw the spirit slammed him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Sometimes 
they possessed supernatural strength like the man possessed by the legion of demons in the Gadarenes. And they were very violent. He was very violent and went around in unsociably behavior, going around naked, self-harming himself, cutting himself. Some other times we see that they may have supernatural knowledge. In Mark 1.21, we see a demon who professed the true identity of Jesus early on in his ministry, saying, you are the Holy One of God. But I don't know about you, have, have you ever seen someone possessed by a demon, a demon-possessed person? Um, some nods, I would love to speak to you. I have not seen anyone demon-possessed. I don't think so. Uh, I may have my uh, thoughts, but uh, no. For the most part, I, I don't think we, we see that. We see that today. Uh, I, I certainly have sensed evil. I have sensed a, a, a sort of demonic oppression, or I think that is what it is like. Uh, remembering one time traveling in South Africa on holiday, and we reached this one region that there was just an overwhelming oppression of evil. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe. It is... It is, you're just aware of it. Uh, and, and it's the first time ever in my life that I have cut short a holiday, uh, leaving that, that resort uh, because of this sense of evil, the sense of foreboding. Um, and it was not only me, it was Krista as well. So that we packed up and, and, and left early. Um, but we, we in, the, in the Western world, uh, we often... Uh, classify people, evil people who are doing evil things as mentally disturbed, suffering from some mental illness, when in fact they may well be demon-possessed. Now, please hear me right. I'm not saying that all mental illness is demonic, but I do think that there are some misdiagnosed cases. And this demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus, and the point I want to make to us is, is Put yourself in that situation. This man was evil. He, he, he had evil in him. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a nice date occasion. It was a disturbing occasion. He's, the people who brought him were desperate to help him. And Jesus delivered this man from his demon possession, from his control by this demonic being. And Jesus healed this man, and suddenly this man was totally different. He was probably calm, peaceful. Suddenly he could see, suddenly he could speak. Truly miraculous. Truly evidence that the one who healed him had power and authority over demonic beings. And so the people, the crowds, they were saying, wow, perhaps this man is the son of David. And, and the Greek is constructed in the sense that they were, there, was, there was doubt in, in their minds. This is not an emphatic statement, but it's more a wondering, more perhaps listen, looking for answers, perhaps turning to the religious leaders and say, is this not 
the son of David? Who, who can do these things? Ex explain to us just what, is, what we've witnessed. And of course, the son of David was a messianic title. Um, three times uh, we read in the Gospels that, that people cried out, Have mercy on me, son of David. Uh, in all instances, Jesus healed them. And two other occasions when after the healing, after Jesus healed someone, they actually spoke out of him in terms of the son of David. Now many Old Testament prophets prophesied that the coming king, the Messiah, will establish his kingdom, a kingdom that will be characterized by blessing. There would be spiritual blessings, that there would be salvation, that it would be a righteous kingdom, it will be a just kingdom, it will be a peaceful kingdom. But there will also be physical blessings. There would be healings, there would be long life, there would be a restoration of nature to its Edenic form. Uh, it would be, there would be a harmony among the nations and a great prosperity. And so now in healing this man... Uh, the deliverance of this man from this oppression of darkness, this possession of by a demon, provided a clear demonstration that Jesus is king. It was, it was undeniable. He was giving them a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven would be like when it comes in its fullness under his rule. So Jesus is the coming king. Right? He proved it. Right? And so that is the first element that we need to understand when it comes to the unforgivable sin. It, there is a, has to be a clear demonstration that Jesus is king. A, a clear revelation to us uh, that he is the spirit anointed one. That he is who he claims to be. going on to the willful defamation of Christ as king. And so the crowds were looking for answers, for an explanation. And the Pharisees, blinded by their own prejudice, gave a hateful verdict. They said, no, he is not the son of David. He is of Satan. They couldn't deny the miracle. I mean, they saw it. Everybody there said, oh, this man was as blind as a bat and as mute as a fish. And now look, he sees and he talks. And, and he, and, and he, and he, uh, yeah, he, he speaks. And so they could not deny the miracle. So they denied the source of the miracle, the source of the power. And really, what they were, they were prejudiced because they, he, he cannot be our Messiah. We don't want him to be our Messiah because he's a Nazarene. He, he, he's, 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 a, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a, he's a drunkard, man. He's a, he's a glutton. He's, he's a Sabbath breaker. He cannot be from God. Therefore, his power must be from Beelzebul and not from God. He casted out a demon. Yes, we cannot deny it, but he did it by the power 
of Beelzebul. Beelzebul was really originally back in 1 Kings, we read that it was a, a pagan deity of the Philistines, a pagan false god. And over time, the name was, was, was used or transferred to be used to refer to Satan himself, the ruler of demons, the, the devil of these demons. And so the Pharisees did not want Jesus as king. They did not, he did not fit their desires or their idea of what the coming king should be like. And so they defamed him, saying, no, this is not the son of David. He is an agent of Satan. And so their vindictive jealousy, their murderous hatred in their hearts boiled over onto their lips with these words, this explanation. And, and people, we should not miss the enormity of this sin. They, they were saying that compassionate Jesus who healed people, he who had power to do miracles, he who was kind and whose words was true and authoritative, his deeds were good. But that was satanic, they say. That was from the devil. Jesus delivered this man. He healed this man. He restored this man. But they say that was not of God, but of the devil. They were calling good evil. It is, it is truly astonishing. And, and you can see why begin to see at least why this sin could be unforgivable. Attributing good to evil, they denounced Jesus and defamed him. His person, his teaching, his deeds of mercy, his kindness, his miracles, as not being from God but from the devil. And so they sought to kill Jesus. They sought to murder him. For being of Satan. You remember back in chapter, chapter 12, verse 14, after he healed the man on the Sabbath with the withered hand, they conspired together as to how they may destroy him. And this is their first attempt. They accuse him not of demon possession, that will come later, but they accuse him of consorting with the devil, with demons, that he was in league with them. Leviticus 20 verse 6 describes as the punishment uh, of, of someone who is involved in mediums and spirits. It says, verse 6 says, And for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 27 of that same chapter of Leviticus 20. Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so, so this incident, this event, this response really marked the official rejection by the religious leaders of Jesus as the anointed one from God, as the prophesied expected one, the son of David, the Christ. And in doing so, they rejected also God's offer of the kingdom of God to them, that for which they have been longing for and waiting for for centuries. 
Which brings us to the patient deliberations of Christ, the King. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus' response really astonishes me. Uh, it almost leaves me breathless at his, at his patience, at his long-suffering, at his forbearance, at his self-control. I mean, Jesus responded in meekness and with great humility of heart. He could have called down fire from heaven and consumed this, these bullheaded, belligerent, blasphemous Pharisees for their blatant lies. He didn't even call them the names I just did. He did not quarrel with them. He did not cry out against them in anger. But he was kind. He was patient. When he was wronged, he was correcting them with gentleness. Perhaps if God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus responded as a man of God should. As 2 Timothy 2.24 reminds us how a bondservant of God should respond when opposed and so Jesus responded with incredible restraint and gentleness, even in the face of extreme provocation. Perhaps for the sake of those who accused him, most definitely for those who may have heard these blasphemous remarks. And then it's really a great lesson for us that we should imitate our Savior. We, we will never suffer Sin against us to the level that Jesus experienced it right here. Where the Son of God, doing the work of God by the power of God, is blasphemed, saying, you are from the devil. That is unforgivable. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knew their heart. And of course, it's from the heart that the mouth speaks. And remember this when we come a little bit later to the final declaration. Jesus knows each and every person's heart. He knows their thoughts. And only Jesus has ultimately the authority to condemn someone for committing the unforgivable sin. Only He knows the heart and knows whether someone has blasphemed the Spirit. 
And yet Jesus here still proceeded to counsel them and correct them for their sake and for those who were present and show them how illogical their reasoning was, how implicating their judgments were, how indicative their actions were of their true status. They claimed to worship God, but in fact they were opposing God. And so the illogical reasons, verse 26, if any kingdom or city or house is divided against itself, it will not stand. I mean, we all know that any kingdom in which civil war rages will ultimately destroy itself. Uh, any city, any city in which people are opposed to those in governance over them or opposed to each other, turning on each other at every point, they will not prosper. They will not even perhaps be able to protect themselves as a city. Any house, whether that is domestic or perhaps more a royal house in mind here, uh, divided against itself will end up destroying itself. And one has only has to think of the, the royal family, the Windsor family, um, where family members are divided against each other. Unless they resolve it, it will ultimately destroy them. But Satan knows this. He he uses this as a deceitful and destructive tactic to, to employ division to bring about destruction. Throughout the ages and sadly also in the church today. So Jesus' argument is, is he will not employ that against himself. He will not turn against himself. He will not work against himself. That is illogical. And so therefore... If Jesus is not driving out demons by the power of Satan, then he must be doing it by the power of God. And if he did it by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if the kingdom of God has come upon them because he is there, then he must be the king. He must be the Christ. And so the Pharisees' reasoning was totally illogic, but also self-implicating. Everybody acknowledged, verse 27, that really that, that this uh, man was healed, that the demon was casted out. And Jesus repeatedly claims that his ministry, his work was done. He was doing the Father's work by the power of the Spirit. However, these Pharisees said that he did it by the power of Beelzebub. And so Jesus asked them, well, if I did this exorcism by the power of the devil, what about your sons? What about your disciples? By which power do they do it? Now, some, some dispute the fact that the Pharisees' disciples were able to perform exorcisms, but Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, describes several accounts of of exorcisms that was done by the Jewish leaders, and, and he, he claimed to have even witnessed one happening. Um, but Jesus say, you are prejudiced. He says, when, when your disciples cast out demons, then you say it's by the power of God. But when I do it, you say it's by the power of Beelzebub.
And if you say, I do it by the power of Beelzebub, then it must also imply that your disciples are doing the same thing by the same power. Therefore, implicating yourself that you too are in league with Satan. And so Jesus held up their judgments to see that they were self-implicating. And then he goes on and says, How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. I mean, Jesus have repeatedly demonstrated that he has the authority and the power over spiritual beings, over demons, as well as over nature and disease and even death. And he makes the point that he was able to deliver this man because he was able to bind the strong man. That which no one else could do by casting this demon out, Jesus did by binding the strong man and therefore delivering this man from the clutches of this demon. But because they have rejected Christ and therefore rejected the kingdom, really even to this day, the ruler of this world is still roaming about seeking someone to devour. But with Jesus' second coming, when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth, he will bind the strong man. He will lay hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, Satan himself, and bind him with a great chain and cast him into the abyss so that he would not be able to deceive the nations for a thousand years, Revelation 20 verse 4 tells us, during which time Christ will establish his rule on earth, reigning in Jerusalem over the nations. Jesus, through his deliverance of this man, says, if I do this by the power of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. The implication is repent and believe. But they made them their cards clear. And so in verse 30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So the reasoning they followed, the judgment they made, was indicative of their true status before God, their true position. And they were the ones working against God, against His kingdom, against His anointed King. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The King was right there in front of them. Will you submit? Will you receive me as King? And their answer was no. And Jesus made it clear, if you are not with me, then you are against me. If you are not for me, you are against me. There is no neutrality. There are only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There is no spiritual neutrality. There is no spiritual Switzerland. You're either in the one or in the other. 
And you don't have the option to say, well, I just want to do my own thing. By choosing to do your own thing, you are actually choosing against Christ, against Jesus. You are, in fact, opposing Him. And so our decisions, our choices, our actions really reveal our true allegiance. It reveals who our master is, who our Lord is, who our King is. And Jesus as King demanded back then, as He demands of us today, that we should come and worship Him, that we should come and bow before Him, that we should come and submit to Him, that when He commands us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after Him, that we should do exactly that. And when we choose not to do that, we are in fact hindering His work. We are opposing His work in our lives and through our lives to others. And so when Jesus says, come follow me, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, not doing so is not declining an inconvenient invitation. It is an act of defiance. It is an act of rebellion. It is an act of oh, basically a declaration of independence. It is working against Jesus. I sometimes wonder, I mean, we are, we know God is sovereign and He is over all things and, and all things will turn out exactly as He has planned and purposed it to be. But we also know that we are human, made in His image, and we are free moral beings. We have, uh, we have responsibility for the moral choices that we make. And so in Jesus' day, Christ came and offered the kingdom to Israel. But they rejected him and rejected the kingdom. And so therefore, the kingdom was postponed until Christ would come again. I wonder what, have, what would have happened if they received him. I mean, obviously we can speculate, but it doesn't really matter because they didn't. But at the same time, I also wonder... I wonder if the Lord's coming, His second coming, would not be advanced, would not be sped up if every Christian submit wholeheartedly in every aspect of our lives to Him. Will that not bring the kingdom on earth quicker or faster? Again, speculation. It's worth thinking about. Well, that's what I keep myself busy doing during the week. Uh, but when we are not gathering with Christ, we are in fact scattering. We are in fact hindering. We are in fact obstructing His plans and His purposes. We are opposing Him. That's what Jesus says here in verse 30. And He goes on and He makes this final declaration in verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any blasphemy, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Therefore, 
Now this is in light of everything that has happened. This is in light of the clear demonstration by Jesus that he in fact is the king. In light of the fact that in spite of the knowledge of the Pharisees, they rejected him and defamed in saying he is working in league with Satan. So therefore, and that is in spite of him gently answering and correcting them, their illogic reasoning, their unsound judgment. He says, if you sin against or you blaspheme against the Spirit, that will not be forgiven you. Not in this age or the age to come. Mark in his gospel says that sin is an eternal sin, an unforgivable sin. Whoever speaks against the Son of Man, that shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. Now, D.A. Carson put it this way. The first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel, that there, but there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin is rejecting the same truth in full awareness that is exactly what one is doing. So blasphemy against the Spirit is most definitely more than just saying something demeaning or derogative about the Spirit. Blaspheming the Spirit is more than making a judgment out of ignorance. It is a willful denial of illuminated truth. It is a deliberate disparaging of clear, undeniable work of the Holy Spirit. It is calling good evil when the good is absolutely apparent. And in this case, that Jesus did that. Now, the Pharisees had access to knowledge. They had the oracles of God, providing them ample revelation of who the Messiah is and what it would be like. And then they had the added revelation of seeing his miracles, his life. They saw him deliver this man, or at least heard of it, that there was no other explanation. Jesus did it. Therefore, he must be king. And they must receive him. They must submit to him. And yet, they refused to believe. They refused to receive him. But worse than that, they denounced him as being of Satan. And they sought to kill him. And ultimately they did crucify him. And that is unforgivable. You can speak against the Son of Man. You can reject the truth, the truth of Christ and His gospel. And still be forgiven when you repent. And many of the Pharisees did that. Initially, they were opposed to Jesus, um, even persecuting the church, as we think of Paul. And yet, the Lord was merciful to him and, and forgave him. But sin, or the blasphemy against the Spirit, the speaking against, the rejection of, of Christ and His gospel in full awareness of what you are doing, 
That is the thoughtful, willful, self-conscious rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Saying that good is evil, that will not be forgiven. And so, in a sense, the unforgivable sin was a very specific sin that was specifically and uniquely committed by the Pharisees, those Pharisees at that time under those circumstances. And so in that, in, in that way, we can't sin in the same way. Because we don't have Jesus here present with us. He has not performed a miracle in front of our eyes. He is not offering the kingdom to us in a physical form right here and now. And so the question is, could a Christian today ever be guilty of committing the unforgivable sin? And the answer has to be no. I mean, no Christian could, no Christian would ever say that Jesus and his work is of the devil, is evil. No Christian can commit really the unforgivable sin. This, this sin is only ever committed by those who are not Christian. Who have denied and rejected Christ in spite of a clear understanding of the gospel. A clear understanding of who Christ is. A clear testimony of the Spirit. And yet who turns away in unbelief. And speak against all that they have received. And we see an example of this in the, in the letter of Hebrews or to the Hebrews, where we find a number of warning passages. Um, you can turn to Hebrews 6, maybe quickly, to verse 4. I mean, the recipients of this letter were Jewish people. They were Hebrews. Some who were believers, others doubted, and others were not believers. And so they, the recipients of this letter did not receive, they were not present at the time of Jesus' ministry, they heard the gospel through the apostles. Um, the apostles preached the gospel and they confirmed that this was the word of God by authenticating miracles and signs and wonders as we read in Hebrews 2 verse 3 and 4. And now subsequently to their faith, their, 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 their profession that Jesus is the Christ, they faced many hardships and, and opposition and persecution by their countrymen. And some were tempted and others were actually denouncing Christ and returning back to Judaism. They were saying, in fact, Christ is not the Messiah. He is not the, the, the King and so the, the letter of Hebrews actually has a number of warning passages. And chapter 6 is one of them, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God, word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again Crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And we have to understand that these terms here does not describe a regenerate people. At first glance it may appear that, but, but to be enlightened does not mean that you are regenerated. It means that you have a clear understanding of the gospel. To taste the heavenly gifts doesn't mean that you have the Spirit in you 
or even to partake in the Spirit doesn't mean you have the Spirit in you. It means that you've experienced the goodness of God. Possibly some of them were healed. They've tasted the goodness of God. They've experienced the goodness of God. They were made partakers of the Spirit. Maybe they, 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 they prayed. Maybe they were convicted by their sin, by the Spirit. They possibly shared the gospel with others, as Judas did, as those who, in Matthew 7, Jesus warned us that those who did many signs and wonders and miracles, and yet he said, I do not know you, you workers of iniquity. And so that does not necessarily mean these people were saved, but they have received enlightenment. They understood the gospel. They, they've experienced the goodness of God, the kindness of God. They saw his work in others. The change, that the transformation that was worked in the lives of others through the Spirit, they've tasted the good word of the Lord and they're the, the powers of the age to come. And yet they chose to turn away from that. To reject Christ and His gospel. A willful, deliberate sin against incredible light they were given. And for them, for those who, who, who do that, it is impossible to be renewed to repentance. For in doing so, is crucifying the Lord to themselves again. Like the Pharisees, who did not receive Christ, in spite of all the revelation they had, they chose to reject Him and ultimately to crucify Him. And so these Hebrews were likewise hearing about Jesus, experiencing the goodness of Jesus, and they reject Him. So in, the, in, the, in a similar manner, they were in fact crucifying Him again. They were, we don't want Him as our King, as our Savior. And so falling away from Christ in spite of undeniable evidence is like crucifying Christ again to yourself. It's like trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God as Hebrews 10.29 tells us. And so today when someone, after hearing the gospel, understanding the gospel and its implications, after experiencing the goodness of God, His kindness, after being convicted of their own sin, which is a ministry of the Spirit, yet they refuse to believe ongoingly, continually, if they persist in their unbelief and they persist in rejecting Christ as Savior and Lord in spite of all the revelation, in spite of all the love of God's people, such a person is in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. Now, we are not Jesus. We do not see people's hearts. We do not know people's thoughts. And so even when someone refuses to believe the gospel or speak against the Lord, we don't know if perhaps the Lord would grant them repentance and leading them to the knowledge of the truth and to coming to believe and accept Christ as Lord. Only Jesus can make this final declaration. 
of who is forgiven and who's not. But we do know that if any or any and all who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord in this life, they will not be saved. Their sin will not be forgiven. Their sin of unbelief is a sin that leads to death, as 1 John 5, 16 tells us. All sins are forgivable. All who repent and believe in Jesus alone will be forgiven. However, the willful, persistent, unrepented unbelief will not be forgiven, not in this life or the life to come. Denouncing Christ, defaming Christ and the good work that the Spirit of God does through Him and the Gospel as being evil is unforgivable because it shows a heart that is totally disbelieving. And so if you have come to faith in Christ Jesus and you struggle with this, then I want to give you comfort today from the Word of God that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to Him and received Him, accept His sacrifice for your life, if you come repentant, if you come believing, then you cannot commit this sin because you belong to Him. And he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to fruition in spite of many of our failings on the way there. But if you are not a Christian today, then it is my responsibility and everybody here who are in Christ's responsibility to call on you yet again. Behold Christ. Behold Jesus. See his cross that paid for sin. He raised to life. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is calling you, come to me and I will give you rest. Praise God for a merciful Savior. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord for your word and for your goodness. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. We long, Lord, for you to change the world. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom has come in our hearts and that now we desire to do your will here on earth as it is in heaven. And so bless us, Lord, this day and this week as we seek to live for you in the knowledge of and the assurance of our forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.